Life podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. We're going to be in the book of Colossians here, and we're picking back up here in Colossians this morning. Uh, We're going to be in Colossians chapter number three. We're going to take a couple weeks here uh, to finish up uh, chapter three. And um, we've been talking in this section how the gospel should be affecting our relationships in the church family and the home. And just a a little brief recap of kind of what we've covered uh, so far. Uh, Paul has instructed and commanded us in uh, Colossians 3, 12 through 15 of how those relationships are supposed to look like in shoe leather. Uh, He gives us uh, several examples of that. And then he moves into how the gospel should affect the relationships in the home in verses 18 through 25. We were given those uh, specific instructions for each member of the family. Uh, We dealt with uh, wives. We talked about husbands. We talked about children. And the section that we're going to be looking at here this morning, verses uh, 22 through 25, has to deal with slaves and slaves in the home. Now, Paul actually, I believe, devotes more space to this topic. You'll see he, he gives, uh, he's kind of rather lengthy about how the slaves are supposed to be acting in the home. And uh, I believe that is uh, because it had to do with the fact that when he sent this letter uh, to the church there at Colossae, along with it, uh, he was sending Onesimus, who was a runaway slave from guess where? From uh, Colossae. And in fact, uh, the man that he was sending him back to was Philemon, who was a member of this church. And so Paul, I believe, devotes quite a bit of time here talking about the attitude of the slaves in the home and how they were supposed to be acting um, because slaves were considered part of the household. Uh, they lived there with, uh, with their masters. They lived there in the home. And uh, Paul deals here with them in the context of family relationships. Now, I believe he wanted to make sure that no Christian slave mistook uh, Onesimus' conversion to mean that he could rebel against his master and that no Christian master should then abuse his authority over his slaves. And so he kind of goes in rather lengthy detail talking about how those relationships are supposed to look. Now, I do believe that God's word does address the issue of slaves and slavery and how those relationships are supposed to work within the home and be glorifying to Christ. Now, I want to be true to the text, and I think it's necessary that we understand and address what the Bible does teach about slaves and slavery, because I believe this is something that has sparked many debates in our culture today. Um, And I want you to be well-equipped in order to answer questions when people ask you, uh, you know, the God that you worship, the God of the Bible, why is he okay with slavery? Why is it okay? Why is it in Scripture? Why does it talk about that uh, he never abolished slavery or said don't have slavery? Why is that okay? Now, although we don't have slaves in our homes or neither practice slavery in the sense that they did uh, in the Old Testament, New Testament times, and uh, specifically during the Roman Empire time uh, that Paul writes here. 
Um, there are some important principles that I believe that we can learn from all these things as we look in Scripture uh, that will help us uh, over the next couple of weeks. And so this morning is going to be a little bit different than what we normally do as we go out verse by verse. We're going to do more of a topical uh, look at Scripture. And this is some, a great way to study God's Word. Um, you know, when you are considering a topic, you can uh, look up all the verses that have to deal with that particular word or uh, topic, and then you can begin to build doctrine as far as what Scripture says. And doctrine is profitable. What does the Bible teach us? All Scripture is profitable for what? For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect and thoroughly finished unto good works. And our doctrine always affects our philosophy. So what we believe what Scripture teaches will affect how we live our lives. And so that's why Jesus said, Man should not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so we got every word that is proceeded out of the mouth of God right here. And so as we dig into Scripture and we find out what does Scripture say, it allows us to live our lives the way that Christ has wanted us and wants and desires for us to live our lives. And so we're going to look at some issues here about what the Bible teaches about slavery. And so this is what I'd like for you to take away with you this morning. God never promoted slavery, but rather gave protections for the slaves. God never promoted slavery, but rather gave protection for the slaves. So let's read this text, and then I'd like to address the issue of slavery so we can put things in the proper perspective of why Paul wrote what he wrote. So here's their text here. Colossians 3, 22 through 25. Bond servants obey in everything... Those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality." When we talk about slavery, we need to be careful to approach this issue, I believe, from the perspective of what the culture and what history teaches us things were like in the Old Testament times in the first century A.D. Uh, as it was here, and not read our own time back into that scene. Okay? Slavery was a widespread institution uh, in the Old Testament times in the Roman world, it was really woven into the very fabric of society. It was part of culture, as you would say. When this letter was written in the first century AD to the believers here at Colossae, as much as two-thirds of the Roman Empire were slaves, before the first century, 90%, it was estimated that 90% of the people that were living during that time were slaves. So it was something that was cultural. It was, it was just woven into the very fabric of society. Some have even estimated that there were some 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Slaves held every type of position. They were teachers, they were doctors, they were artists, they were musicians, and almost anything else you can think of. Some were born into slavery. Some sold themselves into slavery to pay off debts or to find a job to support their families. And some were taken forcibly into slavery. 
Slavery was nothing new. What does scripture say about slaves and slavery? Well, we find here, first of all, that the Old Testament law, what does the Old Testament law teach about slavery? When reading through the Old Testament, we find several passages dealing with slavery. Now, I'm not going to give you every single verse here because uh, we'd probably spend uh, probably a couple weeks on this. But I just want to kind of whet your appetite a little bit that the Bible does talk about slavery. And I want you to be diligent enough to dig into Scripture yourself and find out what does Scripture actually say. So let's look at a few highlights of Scripture. Interesting enough, though the slavery which the Old Testament law prescribed was of a vastly different kind that was practiced in England and the United States in the 1800s. Slavery was not prohibited by the law. In fact, in Leviticus 22, 11, and 25, 44, and 46, teaches us that the Israelites and even the priests were allowed to possess slaves from the other nations. Even an Israelite could sell one of his family members into slavery. We saw that, right, in Genesis with Joseph. He could sell one of his family into slavery or even himself if forced to by poverty as what Exodus 21, 7 teaches us and Leviticus 25, 35 through 44, uh, 42 teaches us. We find in Leviticus 25, verses 35 through 42 and verse 46, by law, it was commanded that the Hebrew slave was to be treated even better than the slaves taken from the heathen. That was a law that God wove into uh, the very society and the culture during the Old Testament times. That the slaves were to be treated better than the slaves that were taken from a heathen nation. Now granted, slavery could be hardly considered a desirable condition. One's freedom was significantly restricted. Nevertheless, as what the Mosaic law taught in Exodus 21 Uh, verses 2 through 6, and Deuteronomy 15, verses 13 through 17, a fellow Israelite could not be used as a slave for more than six years, at the end of which he was to be given liberal provisions as a form of severance pay. So even if a person was in slavery, at the end of six years, they were to be let go. Now, obviously, that's quite different than what was done in our nation and even in England uh, of the wicked, wicked things that they did. And so when we're talking to people about slavery and they say, oh, the Bible, it promotes slavery. No, the Bible doesn't promote slavery. The Bible gave provisions for slaves. It gave protection for slaves. It was wicked men who used a wicked practice to accomplish what they wanted to do. So we find here a fellow Israelite uh, was let go after six years, and then they were given provisions in a form of severance pay. If that person wanted to later serve or continue to serve his master forever, he would then put an earring in his ear showing that he was now a bond servant towards that master. And by doing this, the law gave provisions and care for those who might decide to become lifetime slaves. Every 50th year on the year of Jubilee, all slaves were to be freed and returned 
to their families as what Leviticus 25.10 commanded. So even if you had a man that maybe went into slavery because of debt, and uh, let's just say he was in slavery for a, a year, but yet at that year, the 50th year of Jubilee, he was to be set free. It was to be done. He was supposed to be returned. And so these are provisions that God gave towards slaves during that time and protections. Although scripture does not condemn slavery, it clearly speaks against kidnapping and enslaving people. Exodus 21.16 says, Anyone who kidnaps another and either sells him or still has him when he is caught must be put to death. That's what God's word says. In addition, 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10 addresses how the law condemns slave traders. So this strongly suggests that slavery in Israel was of, of a very different kind than that found in the heathen nations as what 2 Chronicles 12, 7 through 8 teach and even what was committed in the 1800s. God was never in favor of that kind of slavery. Slaves that were circumcised were allowed to enter into the worship of the one true God. They were the benefactors of God's gracious provisions, such as the Sabbath rest, as what Exodus 11.5 teach, Exodus 12.44, Exodus 23.12, and also Exodus 25.6. God protected the slaves from a cruel master, as what Exodus 21.20 teaches and Exodus 21.26-27 teach, that a master was to be punished for cruelty or injury to his slave. And so God gave protections. In Job 31.13, we find a very interesting passage about slaves and their treatment. Job actually makes a remark about slaves, and it would appear that a slave could even file a grievance against his master. So quite different than what was practiced in the 1800s. If a slave ran away because of an oppressive master, Deuteronomy 23, 15 through 16, gave protection for them and the slaves were not to be returned. They were able to find sanctuary if they had an oppressive master. From this, we can gather that to be a slave in Israel was by far the best place for any person to be a slave. So that's the Old Testament. What does the New Testament teach about slavery in the Gospels? When we move into the Gospels, slavery was frequently mentioned. If we really want to know what the New Testament teaches on slavery, I think Jesus would be the best spokesperson on that topic, wouldn't you? So what did Jesus say about slaves and slavery? Jesus told a number of parables in which slaves and their masters were key characters. It's interesting to note that in all the parables that Jesus told, he never condemned slavery as evil in any of his parables. I might also add that Jesus also never indicated that slavery was an asset to society either. In Matthew 25, verses 14 through 46, and Luke 17, verses 7 through 10, Jesus tells us some stories in which the slave was punished for his unfaithful service. In John 15, 15, we find Jesus telling his disciples that a slave master 
was under no obligation to explain to his slave why he was commanding him to do a certain task. A slave doesn't need to be told why, just what. We also find that Jesus taught in Luke 7, 2 through 10, that the slave master was represented in a favorable light. Faithful slaves were highly commended, while unfaithful slaves were condemned. What Jesus taught about one standing in the kingdom of God tells us that he turned the value system of that society on its head. He turned it upside down. He taught that greatness was not to be measured in terms of being served, but rather in terms of being a servant. And he was the greatest example of this truth, I believe, as he washed his own disciples' feet. Jesus, who was the master, did what slaves would normally do. And he gave us a great example of that. And our Lord Jesus became a slave in order to bring about our salvation. We are reminded about this in Mark 10, 42-45. And calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them, but it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Because of Jesus' example of becoming a slave, he became an example of submission for all slaves, is what 1 Peter 2, 18-25 teaches. Paul, too, spoke about slavery in the New Testament. Slavery was assumed to be a fact of life. We find that Paul gave instructions on how slaves and masters are to conduct themselves, as noted in 1 Corinthians 7, 21 through 24, 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 2, and Titus 2, 6 through 10. Here in Colossians 3, 22, all the way also through chapter 4, verse number 1, and also in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, we find that Paul gives a prohibition to masters that they are to treat their slaves fairly and justly because they have a master in heaven that's watching. And he will repay them for what they've done. Paul often spoke himself uh, of himself and others as God's slaves in Romans 1.1 and also 1 Corinthians 9.19 and Colossians 1.7. Paul did not view being a slave as the idea condition. And he encouraged any who could gain their freedom to do so, but those who could not were not to agonize about it, knowing that both masters and slaves are God's bond servants. Listen to what he says about this in 1 Corinthians 7 21 through 24. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each man remain with God in that condition in which he was called. And so when Paul encountered slavery and, and what was going on even uh, in this church as Onesimus, who was a runaway slave who 
came out for this church from uh, Colossae. Uh, He finds himself in prison. Paul leads Onesimus to the Lord. He becomes a fellow brother in Christ. I'm sure Onesimus is telling him the story, what happened. Onesimus gets gets out of prison. He gets sent back now to his master, Philemon. And he says, okay, listen, you're going back to Philemon. And you need to obey what he's doing. And he gives all of these things out here. And so this was really prevalent even in Paul's time as he wrote. He indicated here even uh, as what uh, we see in Colossians that Onesimus had been a blessing to him. And he urged Philemon to accept Onesimus back. There's a whole letter written about it, the book of Philemon. I encourage you to read it. And as he receives him back, he was to receive him back as a brother while he was still a slave but clearly left the door open for him to set him free so that he might return to Paul and minister to him as he had done before. And so slavery might not have been sin, but setting this slave free appears to have been really the high road. And he was encouraged uh, to do that. Some of the things that we find about slavery that Paul writes about is that whatever one's status might be in society, Paul makes it abundantly clear that one's earthly status does not affect his standing before God in Christ. In Christ, there are no second-class citizens. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. He says, we are all made to drink of one spirit. Galatians 3.28 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so that was slavery and what was going on even in the New Testament times. Now what about in the, during the Roman Empire? Here we have, during the Roman Empire, a heathen nation. How did they treat slaves? Well, slavery in the Roman Empire was quite different from what the Jews practiced and how the slaves were to be treated is what Scripture teaches us. For one thing, Roman slaves were either to be taken as the spoils of war or were such because they sold themselves into slavery known as bondservants. They were often well-educated. Slaves could marry, accumulate wealth, purchase their own freedom, run a business, Cicero noted that a slave could usually be set free within seven years in any case. Under Roman law, a slave would normally be set free by the age of 30. However, in the Roman Empire, slaves were often mistreated. William Barclay, in his commentary uh, to the letters of uh, Galatians and Ephesians, writes this of the evils of slavery uh, during the Roman Empire during the time Paul wrote these letters Uh, to these churches. Listen to what uh, William Barclay had to say about what slavery was like in the Roman Empire. It has been computed that in the Roman Empire there were 60 million slaves. In Paul's day, a kind of terrible idleness had fallen on the citizens of Rome. Rome was the mistress of the world and therefore it was beneath the dignity of a Roman citizen to work. Practically all work was done by slaves, even doctors and teachers, even the closest friends of the emperors, their secretaries who dealt with letters and appeals and finance were slaves. He goes on to say, often there were bonds of the deepest loyalty and affection between master and slave. 
But basically, the life of the slave was grim and terrible. In law, he was not a person, but a thing. Aristotle lays it down that there can never be friendship between master and slave, for they have nothing in common. For a slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. Vero, writing on agriculture, divides agricultural instruments into three classes, the articulate, the inarticulate, and the mute. The articulate comprises the slaves, the inarticulate, the cattle, and the mute, the vehicles, or like a horse cart. The slave is no better than a beast who happens to be able to talk. Cato gives advice to a man taking over a farm. He must go over it and throw out everything that is past its work, and old slaves, too, must be thrown out on the scrap heap to starve. When a slave is ill, it is sheer extravagance to issue, issue him with normal rations. Continuing, Barclay writes, the law was quite clear. Gaius, the Roman lawyer in the Institutes, lays it down. We may note that it is universally accepted that the master possesses the power of life and death over the slave. If the slave ran away, at best he was branded on the forehead with the letter F, for fugitivus, which we get our word fugitive, which means runaway, at worst he was killed. The tear of the slave was that he was absolutely at the caprice of his master. Augustus crucified a slave because he killed a pet quail. Vidius Polio flung a slave still living into the savage lampreys in his fish pond because he dropped and broke a crystal goblet. Juvenal tells of a Roman matron who ordered a slave to be killed for no other reason than she lost her temper with him. When her husband protested, she said, You call a slave a man, do you? He has done no wrong, you say. Be it so, it is my will and my command. Let my will be the voucher for the deed. The slaves who were maids to their mistresses often had their hair torn out and their cheeks torn with their mistress's nails. Juvenal tells of the master who delights in the sound of a cruel flogging, thinking it sweeter than any siren song, or who, re- who revels in clanking chains, or who summons a torture and brands the slave because a couple of towels are lost. A Roman writer lays it down, whatever a master does to a slave undeservedly, in anger, willingly, unwillingly, in forgetfulness, after careful thought, knowingly, unknowingly, is judgment, justice, and law, end quote. And so this was the slavery that was practiced by heathen nations. And I would say even America, a heathen nation. So when Paul was writing to these believers in Colossae, slavery was prevalent and practiced. And this led to, a, this I believe leads to a very interesting question that I think must be asked. Why didn't God ban slavery then? I think that's a great question to ask. And if knowing about what people would do to another human being, God should have said something in his word, thou shalt not have slaves, right? I mean, wouldn't that have been easier? The truth is, even if God were to say it in his word, would evil men obey it? My answer is no. Because we have the Ten Commandments, and even Christians struggle to obey the Ten Commandments. And so we as believers in Christ, we know what the word of God says and teaches about slavery. 
And even if God did not ban slavery, we have to ask the question, why didn't he do that? You see, Scripture never sought the abolishment of slavery as an institution in the ancient world. In Paul's time, the institution of slavery was not always pleasant and was commonly abused, especially in the Greco-Roman culture, where slaves were simply property. And so to that culture, Paul wrote to the Christians about spirit-filled conduct between slaves and masters that glorified Christ. I mean, here's Onesimus, a runaway slave. Here's Philemon, who has a slave. And Paul speaks into that culture and says, Okay, Onesimus, this is how you are supposed to act. Philemon, this is how you're supposed to treat your slave. I mean, why didn't Paul just say, Hey, listen, I'm writing to you guys, set all the slaves free. He didn't do that. You see, we must remember, when God gave laws to protect the slaves, we know that evil men did not care to follow God's word. And as we observe that every one of the commands that we looked at earlier was violated by those who ran the transatlantic slave trade in the southern cotton plantations, so why did God allow slavery rather than to abolish it? You see, God allowed slavery as a means of provision for the welfare of those who became bankrupt. That they should become servants to others who were financially stable and competent and could therefore provide for them in return for their service in labor. So why didn't God tell Paul when he was writing these letters to churches, knowing of the hardships of slavery in the Roman Empire, tell the slaves to rebel? Rebel against your masters! Could he write an emancipation proclamation? When we think through this issue, I think it's plain that the New Testament writers simply could not outright condemn slavery. If you're familiar with the ancient history, then you'd recall Spartacus, who was a Thracian gladiator who led a rebellion against Rome and the slave owners around 70 BC. The results were disastrous. At the end of the rebellion, which they lost, six Thousand survivors of the revolt were captured by the legions of Crassus and were crucified in one day, lining the Appian Way from Rome all the way to Capua. Furthermore, to whom would such a directive be pointed? To the pagan masters? They do not place themselves under God's law and are not part of the kingdom program. Paul's exhortations to them would be meaningless. To the slaves, they are powerless to bring about their own freedom apart from major acts such as rebellion or running away. So what was God's plan? Throughout Scripture, God's plan to change the world was never by a revolution. The Jews were always looking for a messianic king that would abolish the powers of the Roman Empire. No doubt some slaves were also hoping for Christian leaders like Paul to provoke rebellion against their masters. However, Christ came primarily to abolish slavery in the heart of man. It's always about the heart. And that's what God was doing. He came to make man a new creation. This is a distinction of the gospel. 
Change is to take place from the inside out, not from imposition on social structures. How did God accomplish this? Well, Paul's approach was to lay down universal principles which undermined the evils of slavery and eventually led to its demise. Roman slave owners had come to view work as low and degrading. Paul elevates all work now, whether manual labor or management, by saying that whatever we do, we should do it heartily as to the Lord, not for men. He taught that the radical principle that in Christ there is no slave and free man, but Christ is all in all in Colossians 3.11, thus establishing the personhood and equality of the slave with his master. The slave in Christ is a brother to his master, is what Philemon 16 teaches us. Paul didn't stop by telling slaves to do their work well, but went on to giving masters the countercultural command to now treat their slaves with fairness, reminding them that they have a master in heaven whom they are accountable, as we see in Colossians 4.1. It should be noted that even though Scripture never called for the abolishment of slavery, it certainly has led to its abolishment. We see uh, Christians uh, in England were leaders in the abolishment of the slave trade in that nation. Based on the Christian faith, William Wilberforce waged a decades-long battle against slavery until it was officially outlawed in England in in the uh, early 19th century. Similarly, Christians in America led the way to the abolishment of slavery. It took our civil war to get it outlawed in the United States in 1865. Slavery has been abolished by Christianity in many places around the world through changing the character of man and not the institution. Scripture teaches the equality of all people, the equality of men and women. It teaches proper respect in the workplace between masters and slaves. Scripture's plan to change the world has always been by changing the inner man and how a person thinks. It's Romans 12. Uh, two teaches. And so as stated before, Paul spoke often about the issue of slavery. He never spoke of it as something to be abolished, but rather the power of the gospel that transforms us and brings us true freedom. The entire letter of Philemon addresses that whole issue of Onesimus' freedom. So as believers in Christ, we must keep things in perspective when it comes to social issues such as slavery. Does God want us to make social changes? Is the New Testament about social change first? Or is it about change of the heart? It's always change of the heart. And as people are changed, then society is changed. That's why as believers in Christ, the primary thing that we should be doing is preaching the gospel. Preaching Christ, magnifying Christ, lifting up Christ. Not taking on some social things that are going on. We preach Christ. Christ is the answer in every situation. With all that said through scripture, we need to remember that reforming ungodly systems like slavery, we need to make it a matter of the heart and seek after Christ. And exalt Christ in every situation. Let's look at the last thing here. Are you a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness? And I want to wrap this up with a very simple question that I think that we all can identify with. 
Are you a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness? You see, we cringe at this idea of slavery because slavery is repugnant. A slave is one who has absolutely no authority over him or herself. Romans 6, 15 uh, through 23 gets at this point. Let's read this here real quick. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And have been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There are only two options. Either you're a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. That's it. And if you don't know Christ then you are a slave of sin. You sin. You give in to your sin. You want your sin. You love your sin. But if you've been set free by Christ, you are now a slave of righteousness. Romans 6.16 says that slavery to our sin leads to death. Romans 6.21 points out that we did things of which we are now ashamed. If you are a Christian looking back at your sinful life, Do you feel the shame of it? Why does the thing you wanted most when you were a slave to sin now feel so shameful? Likely it's because you now see that the thing you desired before was sin and that sin would have led you to death. But Romans 6.16 also says that if you are instead a slave to obedience, you will find righteousness. But who or what are we to obey? We find the answer in Romans 6.22, which says, You are now a slave of God, it reads, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit of you get, leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Some people might think it's unfair that God would call us his slaves. But if you know Christ, you were bought by the blood of Jesus. You were purchased by him. He could have left you for dead. So what's not fair? Fair, I suppose, would have been to leave us exactly where we were in our filthy sin and let us die only to be cast into hell and judged for our sin for all of eternity. That's fair. God was more than fair. Instead, he made a way to set us free from our slavery to sin. And he did this by God the Son, Jesus, becoming flesh and living among us and he himself becoming a slave. 
We're reminded in Philippians 2, 6 through 8, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, coming in human likeness and found human and found in human appearance. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Christ descended to the lowest point according to human standards. He became a slave. The slave has no freedom. The slave is nothing. The slave is used and abused, sold and silenced, overworked and executed at will. And he did all that to redeem humankind. Christ relinquished all of his claims to divinity in a sense, and he descended to the lowest place on our social ladder, and he entered into our deepest suffering. He took upon himself your sin and was put to death on the cross. And he died and endured your righteous and just payment and punishment from a holy God. And after he died, he was buried and rose again from the grave three days later. That's the good news of the gospel. And by repenting of your sin and believing the gospel, accepting Christ's sacrifice for you, you can be saved from being a slave of sin and become now a slave of righteousness. In 1732, two young men in their 20s who were believers in Christ, Johann Leonard Dober and David Nitschdom from Hanhurt, Germany, heard of an island in the West Indies where an atheist British owner had 2,000 to 3,000 slaves that were stolen from Africa and brought to an island in the Atlantic, there to live and die without hearing of Christ. The atheist British owner boasted, No preacher, no clergyman will ever stay on this island. If he's shipwrecked, we'll keep him in a separate house until he has to leave. But he's never going to talk to any of us about God. I'm through with all that nonsense. Being moved by the circumstances of the slaves, these young men sold themselves to the British planter for the standard price of a male slave and used the money they received from their sale to purchase passage to the West Indies. The German Moravian community from Hanhurt came to see these two young lads off who would never return again, having freely sold themselves into a lifetime of slavery in order to preach the good news of Christ's forgiveness and love of God and true spiritual freedom from sin to the slaves in the community, which they themselves would now be a part of. Family members were emotional and weeping as the boat began to depart. Was their dream sacrifice wise? Was it necessary? As the ship slipped away with the tide and the gap widening now, the ropes have now been cast off and all coiled up on the deck. The young men saw the widening gap. They linked arms, raised their hands, and shouted across the spreading gap, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. If you have been set free from your sin, are you serving the Lamb as a slave of righteousness? Is Christ receiving his reward of his suffering for your sins? Let's pray together. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.